that <coughs> trip up in Canada. We were on a, a missions trip up there. And we had, she's right, we had like 50, 60 high school kids driving all night long. And on top of that, somewhere outside of Cleveland on Highway 95, we had to pull over and rebuild one of the engines of the bus, put new bearings in it. Remember that, Steve? Max Gray, yeah. What a trip, what a job that was, my. But anyway, those were, those were times that God did some great things. We appreciate for it. Book of Judges. Book of Judges has 21 chapters, 18,976 words, and 618 verses. As we look at the Book of Judges, as every book in the Old Testament, you want to remember what we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 how that all the things in the Old Testament are for our examples and for our examples. We want to remember that everything in the Old Testament, you never want to forget this. And as we come through this study, there's some things that I'm going to keep reminding you of. But one of the things you want to remember is the fact that uh, everything in the Old Testament will illustrate New Testament principles. And I can't get that across to you enough. If you can just learn that one concept and carry it with you, you will learn a lot of things about the Bible. Who got my bookmark, by the way? I just want to lose track. Okay, you got it. All right. Now, there are a number of ways that God teaches you the Bible. The men's study are meeting on Saturday morning, and I've talked with many of you about this, and many of you already know this, that God will use the individual words. When God put the Bible together and allowed the Bible to be put together, he put in it exactly what he wanted it to have. When he preserved the Word of God, he preserved it through the men translating it, and in translating, preserved the exact words that he wants you to have because the words in the Bible are the key to the Bible. Now, no scholar in the world, well, shouldn't say no, most scholars in the world will never understand that. But that's all right. That's true. So you'll find that the words in the Bible, two of the greatest words that you'll ever find in the Bible are two of the smallest words that teach you more than you'll ever know. Simply the words as and the words like. Every time you find the word as, you see the word like, God's trying to show you something. He uses types. Men who portray different things. I've told you before, in the Old Testament, there's 18 types of men who foreshadow the Antichrist. In the Old Testament, there's 21 types of men who foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. And in their storylines and what they accomplish in their lives, where they're from, what they do, how they die, the events of their lives, you will find a profile of the man that they typify. In the Antichrist taste, you'll find a, a complete composite of the man of sin. In the types of Christ, you'll find a composite of the Lord Jesus Christ in almost every aspect. Another way that God uses you to teach the Bible is by association. God will put two things that are together alike. And he'll put them right together. And, and that's where your word as and like comes in. And God will show you by association. One of the greatest ways, and I might add one of the easiest ways that God chose to do it, is by contrast. God will take something that is the opposite of something else and they'll stand for two extreme principles, one right, one wrong, 
and he will put them together in the Bible to show you by that great contrast what he wants you to see in principle form. You're going to find that uh, sometimes he'll put one or two together, sometimes he'll put four or five books together that will show a contrast that will give you incredible information about what you're beginning to study. Now, last book we studied was Joshua. And I showed you how in the book of Joshua that they come into the land, the promised land. We define the promised land now as understanding that the promised land is a picture of your maturity in Christ. It's a picture not of death, not of you dying and going to heaven, but rather you crossing over from the wilderness into the newness of life in a land where you live every day by the promises of God. It is a picture of your spiritual maturity. And with that in mind, the next book we're going to look at today is the book of Judges. And where the book of Joshua on one end shows you the extreme of doing what's right and living by the promises of God and shows you how to do it and gives you the great victories, the other book, Judges, forms the contrast of everything that you could do wrong. And between the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, I don't know of two other books in all the Bible that just by their association and their contrast show you more biblical principles about your everyday life and the things that you struggle with in every aspect than these two books. Joshua shows you how that God will take care of you in every circumstance and situation of life if you will exercise courage. We talked about it when we studied it. Courage to believe the Word of God. Courage to obey the Word of God. Courage to rest in the Word of God. If you will do that in your life, the Bible says, as he told the nation of Israel, nobody on the face of this planet will stop you from being and doing what God wants you to be. On the other hand, the book of Judges shows you what happens when a church, a country, or an individual, and all these contrasts will fit any three, uh, they'll fit any, any configuration you want to put it in, you will find that the book of Judges shows, the, by contrast, what happens when a man or a woman, a church, a country, takes a stand against the Bible, leaves the Word of God, and goes after all the other gods, all the other philosophies of life, all the other religions. Where one shows you the blessings of God, the other one shows you the damnation, and damnation in the Bible is not always just used for dying and going to hell. There's a damnation that the Christian experiences of the corruption of the flesh. And the book of Judges shows you by contrast what happens when you don't keep the Word of God and you forsake the Word of God. And by this contrast, the book of Judges teaches several great New Testament principles. Now, I'm going to give you these principles first, and then I'm going to come through and give you the outline. The outline's real easy. It's one of the simplest outlines in the Bible. But I want to look at what it teaches first, because they're absolutely paramount that you learn these things. So this ask God's blessing and as we'll get into his word. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. And Lord, we ask you now, Father, to take care of us today in your word. 
teach us. We thank you, Father, for the events that have happened already today, for the outpouring of love and the outpouring, Lord, of appreciation and, and everything, Father, uh, that uh, this family has done in our church. We thank you for each one here today, for their love for you, for their word of God, for their friendship to me and my wife and my family, and how that we have chosen together in these last days to be laborers together for you. And I pray, Father, in every endeavor that we'll always stand for the truth and that we'll be found faithful when Jesus comes back on the old paths. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there are several things that I want you to see. And the first principle that it teaches is what is called in the Bible the law of human collapse. Now, we talked about some of these last week because I used a little bit out of the book of Judges, but I want to get into a more depth so you understand how it all goes together in its entirety and its consistency. And you're going to find in the, in the, that there's seven laws that the, everything runs by. They're all laws found in the Bible. One of those laws is the law of human collapse. Scientists see it when they study the order of the universe and the order of our planet. Sociologists see it when they study the patterns of life and the patterns of man. The weatherman sees it when he studies the meteorology effects of this earth. Everybody sees it. It's called the second law of thermodynamics from the scientific world. If you want to get real technical, it's called the law of enthropy. And it simply says this. Now, I could give you the $25,000 scholarly uh, concept of it and, and impress you with great and telling swelling words about that you wouldn't understand but the second law of thermodynamics simply says this you're not better today than you were yesterday you're worse your house is not any better today it's worse today than it was yesterday everything in this universe runs down nothing runs up the evolution teaches that man started out and is moving up. That's against the law of second thermodynamics that every scientist in this world ascribes to, that nothing starts and runs up. It all starts right and runs down. Everything deteriorates with time. Nothing gets better. You don't get better. I don't get better. And, and, and the, your house isn't better. Your car isn't better. I mean, everything in this world is running down. And the law of human collapse simply means that man, left to himself, will fall into a pattern. That pattern is so clear down through history that you couldn't miss it. I've taken a lot of these complicated things in my own life and my own time so I can understand them, and I've broken them down. I put all history runs like this. It starts with a man. It goes to a movement. It goes to a machine. And then the fourth stage, it becomes a monument. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, that's the law of human collapse. Everything in this world runs down. We can have the greatest meeting that you've ever been part of. God could come down and speak to your heart and rip your heart out and just burden you and show you and, and put you on fire for God. You could sit in that seat and you could just say to God, God, this is the greatest service I've ever been in my life. You have spoke to me so much. You've given me so much. And you know what? In some place in our lives, we all could probably go back to some place like that where God really met with you and you really did a work in your life. And when you get up off your knees or you get out of your seat, you had committed in your heart that, boy, you were going to take a stand for God and do what was right. And God this, not that. And you got the whole thing down. And let me tell you something. 
30 seconds after you're up and out that door, that concept and commitment begins to deteriorate. I'm telling you. And the next day, it's even more deteriorated. And that's why so many of us found our, find ourselves right back in the same situation that we were because we don't understand the law of human collapse. You look at the great organizations. I, 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 talk, I use the Salvation Army. Salvation Army was the greatest organization at the end of the Philadelphian church age probably the world has ever seen as an organized organization outside the local church. It started with a man. It always does. William Booth. William Booth came to the point where he had a burden. He wanted to reach the lost. And he did it in a unique way of going out with a downtrodden and, and putting it together where he reached out to a part of society that nobody was reaching to and probably won millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people to Christ. He started a movement called the Salvation Army. After his death... <clears throat> Somebody else takes it over, then somebody else gets it, then they form a little group, then they form a corporation, then they form this, then they form that, and it turns into a machine. A fast, slick Madison Avenue where you got to do this and you got to do that, and they get all kinds of ideas, and the founder's main basic concept of winning, just winning people to Christ gets lost. You know what the Salvation Army is today? It's a monument. They don't believe in salvation. They believe in social status or they're involved in social issues. And I'm not saying that they're not important. What I'm saying is that's not what the old man started it to be. It went through the progression of man, movement, machine, and in a monument. And that's exactly the way churches go. I came out of the Canton Baptist Temple. Canton Baptist Temple was started by a guy by the name of Harold Henniger. Harold Henniger is one of the original boys from J. Frank Norris. I used to hear him tell stories about the old man Frank down in Texas. J. Frank Norris broke from the Southern Baptist Convention because of their apostasy. He started the only Bible college on the face of this planet in the 1940s and 50s that believed the King James Bible was the Word of God and had a, a sign, which I've seen pictures of on his building, that ran all the way around his building. And his building was like four blocks by four blocks by four blocks of said. The only the only Bible college in the world teaching the authorized 1611 as the absolute fallible word of God. He had that on his building back in the 40s and the 50s. He was an incredible guy. He trained every man that made up the fundamentalist movement which we all are from. Harold Henniger started the Canton Baptist Temple back in the, back in the middle 40s. My mom and dad started going there uh, in the, uh, during World War II. I came along in 1950. I went there all my life till I got out of fellowship with God, but I watched that church go from the fact that a man started out believing that Bible was the Word of God, and in 1975, one of the greatest controversies they were having in that church was with another man, most of you know, Mel Sabaka, who believed the King James Bible Word of God, and the pastor and every man on that staff and half the people in that church, from point A to point B, no longer believed the Bible. Now what happened? Somebody said, I don't understand that. It's easy. Man, movement, machine, monument. 
The law of human collapse will affect you in everything that you do. And you need to understand that. I'm going to give you the answer to the law of human collapse in just a minute. But you need to understand that left to yourself, you will deteriorate in every way. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, I mean, you will fall apart. And the system is man, movement, machine, and monument. Harold Henniger started out a man. Trained in the Word of God. He started out with, and then he produced a movement. I built a church. And in the process of the 30, 40 years of building that church, he got educated. He had people come in, and he lent a scholarship, and he forgot the old past, and he got a new concept, and he didn't have enough courage to stand up to his buddies, and everybody else around the country was doing it, so he did it. You know what the church is today? It's a monument. The most gigantic facility you have ever seen in your life that spans six city blocks with 14 or 1,500 people in it. And most of them over 60 years old. When he retired because of his health, they couldn't find a pastor. They went for five or six years without any pastor. You know why? Nobody could agree on what they wanted to look for, and they couldn't find anybody who had the education that they were looking for to pastor a church. And I use that as an example because that's the example all over, this, all over the country today. Second thing. Not only is the law of human collapse there, but it teaches that if God does not inject himself into man or man's history or man's life, that law of human collapse will absolutely be absolute. In other words, you have to have God injecting himself in your life on a daily basis. You have to. And that's why if you don't do that, and you don't stay true to the book, and you don't stay true to his word, you will collapse spiritually. That's why it's so important to get preached to. That's why it's so important to stay in your Bible. That's why God ordained and gave the concept of the local church. That men and women could come and God could inject himself into you. Now the problem with that is that many, many years ago, preachers stopped injecting the word of God into you and now they inject themselves into you. But that was the plan. And that will still work. And when you come here, you'll get the book. Third thing, the most terrible thing that can happen to any man or any country or any church is for God to leave him alone. In your place and in my life, the worst thing that could happen to you or any church or any country is for God to back off and not touch that church individual anymore and leave him to his own devices. At that point, the law of human collapse takes over and that man, woman, church, country, nation, whatever the case may be, will wind up with a reprobate mind and will wind up in deep apostasy. Now, that's what's wrong with the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church age is a church that the God has spewed them out of his mouth. He has nothing to do with them. Therefore... They are left to their own devices. That's why you see all the stuff that you see today. That's what's happened to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel dumped God, forgot God, and they are in a deep 
apostasy today even more than they were in the Old Testament because God has left them alone. I'm not saying he's not orchestrating the scenes behind the scenes. I'm saying God is not injecting himself into Israel anymore until they get into the tribulation period and do what they got to do because they crucified Christ. And I'm saying that God is not in 99.999% of the church. We'll get to that in a minute. The worst thing that can happen to an unsaved man is for you to quit getting tracks. Somebody to quit witnessing to you. See, you don't like it, but boy, my, 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 that might be the only thing that's keeping you from going to the dredges of apostasy and sin in this world. I'll tell you something else. Don't you think for a second that can't happen to a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that here's a man that wouldn't get right with God. And the Bible says that they turned, a saved man, they turned him over to the devil that his flesh may be consumed and his soul and his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Here's a man that won't do what's right. He won't repent of his sin. Therefore, he is turned over to the, a saved man. You know what that means? I mean, God takes his hand off of him. That means everything's been tried, everything's been tried to work with, he won't, so God backs off, everybody backs off, and the devil has him. Rough. Now the next thing that it teaches is that God's people, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, are totally dependent on leadership. Totally. They're totally dependent on their leadership to keep them in the Bible. There has never been, there has never been any nation of people more dependent on their leadership than the nation of Israel. You give them a good one, they'll do anything in the world. You give them a bad one, they were right in the mix of it. Christians are the same way. You give them a good one, they'll do what's right. You give them a bad one, they'll follow right in line. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I don't know why people lack such intestinal fortitude today to be able to stand up and take a stand against what's wrong in Christianity other than the fact they don't know what they're doing but I'm telling you it's true of countries you look at Germany you give them a good leader like Martin Luther and they won the, all of Europe to Christ and changed the course in the face of the world you give them a bad leader like Adolf Hitler look what they did it's incredible England's the same way you gave them Bloody Mary she brought the England Empire under the Roman Catholic Church and killed more Christians than anybody all in all of England's history. You give them a good one, Elizabeth, King James Bible goes around the world. It's true. In everything that you see. You give the church a man that will stand and preach and teach the Word of God uncompromising, he will build around him people that take the same stand. You get some little preacherette that preaches little sermonettes and sells them out on cassettes, and that's what you'll get in your church. It's just the way that it works. And I'll tell you something else. As a church and as a pastor, the number one thing you have to guard against in this church, any church today, is false doctrine and false teaching. When Paul wrote the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, he wrote to that young man, Timothy, preparing him for the ministry. And remember now, Timothy is the model Christian in the New Testament for you. 
Antioch may be the model church, but Timothy is the model Christian and the model pastor. He's warned over and over and over again about wholesome words. Beware of science falsely so called that the word of God is profitable for doctrine and all of those things. The study to show themselves approved. He's told to be a soldier, to do a hardness, to stand. To stand against what? Stand for the book and against false doctrine and false teachings which was creeping in and sweeping through Christianity even in Paul's day. From the book of Galatians chapter 5, you learn a great principle. That principle is simply this. A little leaven, a little leaven, leaven in the Bible is false doctrine. A little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. And you're going to see from our story today in the book of Judges, every one of these principles come true. This is what destroyed the nation of Israel, and this is what has destroyed Bible Christianity. And by the way, it will destroy this church unless every man and woman on this, in this church is on the watch. You're on the watch. You're on the watch for false doctrine and false teaching. Last Saturday night, I was at, went to an astronomy meeting I always go to once a month. In fact, I was late because we had Maddie's birthday and I didn't get there uh, a time. But when I got there, they already started. And I went in, they held it at a, a church out in Lee Summit. And I was out there and I didn't want to go in. And when I drove in, there was two guys, young guys, about 20, 19, 20. And they, they pulled in the parking lot and I went on in. And I was kind of looking through the doors there and I didn't want to disturb everything. And they come walking in and they said, he said, is that a church service in there or are they having a meeting? And I said, oh, it's an astronomy club. I said, uh, they, they meet here once a month, and the church lets them use it. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, well, okay, that's fine. And he started to walk out. And I thought maybe they needed direction. And I felt like an idiot because they didn't say, can I help you? You know, me being the kind, gentle, sweet person that she said I was, you know. <laughs> so I walked out of the park. I said, hey, I said, uh, can I help you? I thought maybe they needed directions. Can I help you? And the guy said, well, we were just, we were just had a couple of Bible questions, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And I'm thinking, okay, and I'm, you know, and, he, and I said, oh, really? And I, I, I thought maybe you were, I said, no, no. We were just driving down the road, talking about the Bible, and our pastor is out of town, and we just wanted to ask somebody about the Bible. Now, to the average person, that would stone you. The average person would say, oh, this is great. To the seasoned veteran, a red flag going up. That just doesn't happen. There aren't too many people, there ain't many people walking the street with a sign that says, save me, I'm lost. <laughs> Every Sunday, I get up here and say to you people, hey, look, you know what, anybody wants to study the Bible? Nobody ever comes to talk to me. So don't tell me that you're going to drive down the road and you're going to be talking to this guy about the Bible and you say, oh, here's a church, let's go in here and just happen to see if anybody's there so we can ask some Bible questions. Now, maybe that happens Back in Acts 7 or 8, 9, 10, but it doesn't happen in Kansas City very often, if any at all. But here I am. I played my role, which my best role is stupid. And I said, okay. I said, well, maybe I can help you. And he began to talk to me, and he began to run me through radical verses. And I began to see very quickly that this guy wasn't, this was a setup deal. I talked to the pastor later, and he said, yeah, what they do... <coughs> He says that they, they infiltrate people into your church and they'll come to your Bible study, they'll come to this, they'll come to that and they'll, they'll sit around for a while and come to service and they'll see you, maybe mark who the weak Christians are and then they'll go over and start talking to them and confuse them, want to have Bible study with them and first thing you know, your people are confused and lost. Before you turn around, they're out of your church and they're over in theirs. See? Now, I do not believe 
that they were just driving down there one time. But I do believe that I was at the right place at the right time because they thought they had a dummy. And boy, in the next 35 minutes when I was done with them, you'll be surprised what I can do when I'm really play stupid. I know how to ask the right question to make you confused and give you the answer to show you how stupid you are when you thought I was stupid for asking it. And he started to go there, and the whole thing was predestination. They come from a covenant church, and which is called Reformed Theology today. And, uh, and you know what? And he, he, read, he said, well, I got a verse I want to add. We talked about predestination a little bit, and I just kind of sparred with him. And he said, he said well, I got a, he said, can you explain this verse? He went over to that book of Acts, chapter 13. And he read the verse, and the verses he read it, just as sure as could be, said predestination. And I said, I said, you ain't got a King James Bible, do you? And he said, no. And he said, what do you got? He said, an NIV. And I said, that explains it. He said, what, 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 what do you mean that explains it? I said, well, that's the reason why you're hung up on predestination. He said, well, I don't, what do you mean? He said, doesn't that what it says? I said, yeah, that's what it says. Mine don't say that. He said, well, they're the same. I said, really? They're the same. Okay, well, when I was done with him, he found out they weren't the same. <laughs> and I, he said, I said, he said, he said, well, he said, we, we take Reformed theology. And I said, yeah, what Reformer do you get it from? I said, from Calvin. I said, I said, Calvin. I said, yeah. I said, I said, do you sprinkle babies? And he says, no, not at all. I said, Calvin did. And I said, tell you something else. You ever read a book on John Calvin? No. Well, let me just tell you this. If John Calvin... Believe what he wrote in the books that he wrote, he's in hell this morning. If he believed what he wrote in his books. I read his books. And then I said, John, Calvin didn't come John Calvin anyhow. You know where John Calvin got sprinkle babies? He got it from the Roman Catholic Church. You know where he got it from predestination? He got it from Augustine in the Roman Catholic Church. And see, your Bible is a Roman Catholic Bible. That's why when they changed the Roman Catholic Bible and put those things down, they put predestinated in it, and you got the wrong Bible. That, and, oh, I'll tell you what, he didn't have a clue. But you see, that's what wants to creep into this church. And maybe have a tougher time here. But that's the way they want to operate today. They want to sneak in, find the weak ones. And that's why the church has to guard against false doctrine. That's why, and I'll tell you, Galatians chapter 5 verse 9 talks about a little leaven leaven the whole lump. But Matthew chapter 13 tells you how that lump got leavened. Oh, the Bible will never just say this without showing you how it happened. You want to find out why we got the mess we got with bad doctrine today? Go back to Matthew chapter 13. The story is right there, and that shows you where a woman took measures of, three measures of meal and hid leaven in it. Oh, you study those three measures of meal and see who they're at. You got it all figured out. So those are the New Testament concepts that are found in the book of Judges. And the last thing, as I said, you have got to protect the people and your church from false doctrine. That is the number one thing. Now, the book of Judges breaks down really easy. And the book of Judges is one of those great books that follows a natural procession. There's 12 men in this Bible, in this book, who are judges. And the judges are men that God raised up to deliver the nation of Israel every time they fell into apostasy. And there's 12 of them. Now, a lot of guys say there's 14 because they count 
Eli and Samuel when he get into 1 Samuel. That's fine. But as far as the book of Judges is concerned, there's 12. And these are the men that God raised up to deliver the nation of Israel when they fall into the apostasy. Now, with these 12 men, we got another whole study. <clears throat> because these 12 men will show you the messed up concept of leadership that's found in the nation of Israel during this time. And I'm telling you, these guys, some are good, some are bad, some are terrible. And these guys are the very best that Israel has, and they, they, they try to bring back the nation of Israel and leave the nation of Israel in tough times, and they only make the situations worse. I couldn't help but read that a number of years ago, <clears throat> and I thought of our own country. <clears throat> because our own country is in the same mess. And I got looking at this, and I thought, you know what? America is just like the nation of Israel. This is like Christianity. America is so dependent on its leadership. And I remember, I remember back in the early 16, 1700s when they were forming, when they were forming this country. They were sitting down and they were talking about how, what kind of government they were going to have. You see, you're told today that we're a democratic government. That's not true. This country was never set up after a democratic government. This country was set up as a republic. And there's a difference between a democracy and a republic. A democracy is where the people get to choose. A republic is where the government is set up based on principles found in the Word of God. That's the definition. And they were sitting around back there, and John Lott, one of our founding fathers, he began to stress the emphasis that when we put our government together, that we needed to sit down and make sure we had good laws. He wrote a great paper, wrote many papers on it. And he made many speeches before that little group. And he said, we as, as a floundering nation must, at the beginning, set down good laws. William Penn, in 1681 gave this address, and I'll tell you what, it's one of the most unbelievable pieces of wisdom that I have ever read in my life. Certainly showing the character and the concept of the men who were in leadership when this church began. John Lott has said, we need to have good laws. William Penn said, no, you're wrong, John. No. We don't need good laws. What we need is good men. By good meaning saved men, what he's talking about. He said, we don't need good laws, we need good men. He says, good laws do good, but good men do better. He said, good laws might help man be better, but good men will never lack good laws and will never allow a bad one. And I'm telling you what, that kind of wisdom was built into this country by our forefathers who simply said, good laws aren't enough. You need born-again, blood-washed, saved men in office who not only put good laws, but are good men. In other words, their lives are dictated by the principles of the Word of God that produce the laws. Incredible. Incredible. And we see from that point, by the early 1800s, end of the 1700s, every state in the Union 
had in a state constitution that you could not hold office in that state if you weren't a born-again, blood-washed child of God, believing in God, the devil, and hell, eternal judgment. See, back then, they believed you had to believe in heaven and hell and eternal judgment because they wanted you to believe that as their public representative, you were going to give an account someday before God for the laws you made. That was William Penn. That's what made this country great. Law of human collapse came in. Here we are today. So <clears throat> this book is simply built around these 12 men. And it's easy. <clears throat> in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, <clears throat> you have a record of the apostasy that they get into. <clears throat> the fall of the nation of Israel and its long-term results. You remember <clears throat> when we studied Joshua last week. I showed you this in the last chapter, in chapter 24. Three times, Joshua warns them and admonishes them that you cannot serve God and you cannot keep those false gods. And three times, he warns them and admonishes them that if they think they're going to be able to serve God and keep these idols, that they're nuts. And three times, they will not give him a definite statement against the other gods and the other idols, but they simply say this. We will serve the Lord. Now, what you see at the end of the book of Joshua destroys them in the book of Judges. And we see that, as I told you last week, Judges is the weirdest book the world has ever seen. The whole book is to be viewed and understood in the last verse of the book, 21-25. No king in Israel. And every man doing what's right in his own eyes. That's the book of Judges. That's America. That's the church today. There's no king. There's no authority. And you see, Judges gives you insight to why you can see some of the weirdest things in New Testament Bible Christianity today that are so contrary to the Word of God. And they confuse us. I mean, you see churches that seem to be successful. They talk about God. They have Bible studies, they sing hymns, they take up offerings, they, uh, they help people, people get saved, they have missions they support. From the outside, it looks like, well, this is what it ought to be. But when you get on the inside, you see some of the most unbelievable, confusing stuff that you ever see in your life. And God's people today are about as confused as they can get, if they know anything about the Bible at all. I used to do it. I used to sit back and scratch my head. I mean, I, I, when I was growing up back in the 60s and the 70s, and I was listening to the Bible being taught, everybody was saying the latest see in church were those groups that were the liberal churches back then. And everybody thought, oh, that's what they were. But now that's very clear. That's not true. The latest see in church is us. It's the very people who had the Word of God, who had God, who left Him and dumped Him now, and we've got something else. And the book of Judges begins to show you how God's views the church and his perspective today. Uh, we're a, we are a strange people. We are a very gullible people. And uh, I noticed this last, not this last week, week before last, when President Reagan died. And, you know, I, <clears throat> I, have, <clears throat> I have no qualms with President Reagan. I mean, I, I thought he was a great president. And, uh, you know, besides, man, I'll tell you what, anybody could be on Death Valley days for 20 years it's okay in my book. 
that was an old Western movie he hosted for a lot of years. But I, I, and, I, and I watched that thing, you know, and I thought to myself, you know what? This is so interesting because this whole nation is getting a perspective, a week-long funeral. And, I, and I'm not against that. I mean, he was the president of the United States and all that. But I thought to myself, you know what? Somewhere over in China, somewhere over in Africa, somewhere over in the Baltic, somewhere over in Europe, somewhere over in Russia, some over there place where nobody knows. There's some old child of God or some dear saint of God that gave her life for everything all her life to serve God, never had one bit of notoriety. And when she dies, she's probably thrown in a hole someplace with dirt covered over and nobody ever thinks twice about it. And here's a guy, somebody said, well, President Reagan was safe. Well, you know what? I don't know if he wasn't or wasn't. But let me just say this about him. I said it about Calvin. I listened to the dude Bugwitz that got up there and gave his eulogies. And let me just say this. If those are his friends and he really believed what those guys said, the Bible said about going to heaven, he's in hell. Now, I'm not saying he's in hell. I'm just saying, I just go by, you know what? Let me tell you something. If I die and one of you guys do my funeral, if you don't tear the paint off the walls and preach the truth, I'm going to come back and bite you in the posterior extremities, man, in the lower regions. Man, get up there and got the whole world. And what do you talk about? Oh, he's fishing in the beautiful streams of the water and He's looking to the purple sunset. Da -da 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 oh man, I'm telling you. You know, let us join together in the common universal concept of baptism. Oh, give me a break. Now I'm not saying he was or he wasn't. I don't know. I hope he was, but I'm just saying this, man. Come on. I know this. I watched his life. I grew up by his president. I never heard him make one stake publicly about the second coming of Christ. I never heard him make one statement about the Bible being the absolute and perfect word of God. I never heard him make one public statement any place in the world. The fact that God was going to judge the world someday and there was a place called heaven and a place called hell. I mean, I, so you take it from there. I'm just saying. There's a lot of weird things we buy into. And you see, when I look at something like that, sure, I'm moved. I'm moved. And I think to myself, honor to whom honor is due. But I don't buy into the place where, you know, it's just Rush Limbaugh said, today God spoke to America and America was listening. <laughs> and then he went home that night, his wife said, by the way, I'm leaving you. God told me while he was talking to you that that's what I'm supposed to do and off we go, you know. Come on. Keep it in perspective. And the book of Judges helps you see things as God sees it. Not just the Reagan funeral, anything in life. Where the whole world just paints it up as, oh, God is here, God is there, and he was the greatest servant God ever had, da 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 And there's some old guy over there in Africa that nobody even knows his name, gave his whole life serving God, dies and they bury him in a pit someplace. God's got a perspective you need to see. And that's what the book of Judges does. It shows you how God looks at things. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, you have the beginning of the, we talked about this last week, the 93 missing years. There's 120 contradictions in the King James 16 authorized version. 120 mistakes that God made. 120 places where God just lost it and put the thing down wrong. There's books on it. I've looked at all 120 of them. I must confess with you, 90 of them could be answered and worked out with just common sense. But that's the first problem we got. The last 30 take about five minutes of Bible study and turn in your pages and believe in what you read to solve those. But anyway, you and we talked about this last week. And the great concept here, there are no contradictions in the Bible. In those 93 missing years that you find from the book of Acts are answered in the book of Judges. 
And in Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, you got eight years with the king of Mesopotamia. Judges chapter 3, verses 12, you got the 18 years under Moab. Judges chapter 4, verses 1, you got the 20 years under Sisera. Judges chapter 6, you got 70 years with Midian. And in Judges chapter 13, you got 40 years with the Philistines. That adds up to 93 years. There you are. No big deal. But what it does is it teaches another great concept back then that's also a principle today. God was not counting the time that the nation of Israel served other gods. And the point is this. God doesn't count the time today. We aren't busy doing something for Him. Now, I talk to you about building a Laodicean, being a Philadelphian church in a Laodicean church period. I talk about my job as building Philadelphian Christians in a Laodicean church. Somebody says, Bob, how do you do that? Well, the Bible tells you to do that. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 lays the thing out. It says that I'm to redeem the time because the days were evil. So I can, as a New Testament, born again, child of God who believes the Bible, I can, for myself and for this church and for you, we can redeem that time. Somebody says, well, it says redeem the time for the days were evil, but how do you do it? You've got to go to Psalm 90. In Psalms 90, verses 9 through 12, or on down through there, it tells you exactly how to redeem that time. The Bible never tells you to do something without giving you a place that tells you how to do it. He tells me leaven over here. He shows me where the leaven comes in. He tells me to redeem the time. He's going to show me how to redeem the time. So with all in mind, let me give you a quick breakdown of the judges and then we're out of here. Because I know it's Father's Day and I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a father and a grandfather. Next week I'm going to be an archbishop. But anyway. <laughs> now keep in mind, as we break these things down, in the book of Judges, <clears throat> not only is it a picture historically, <clears throat> it is a picture inspirationally of the things in our own life and our own latest in church, but you're going to find doctrinally the pictures of the second coming. You're going to find great principles on uh, the tribulation period, the millennium, and of course life, sin, and the Laodicean church period. All right, the first judge. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. The first judge is Orthnel. And he delivers them from the king of Mesopotamia. Some I'm going to spend a little more time with. Some I'm just going to breeze through just so you get it. But we're going to end good here in just a minute. Chapter 3, 12 through 14. The second judge, Ehud. Now, he's a neat guy. Study that story. He kills a guy by the name of Eglon, king of Moab. And it's one of the neatest pictures you ever saw in your life. Because it's a picture of New Testament soul winning. Because this guy goes in and he talks to this guy, who's in a picture of an unsaved guy. He's a, he's a, he's a, uh, a really worldly guy. And uh, the Bible says that uh, Ehud's got a, a sharp little two-edged dagger. Picture of the Word of God. And uh, he walks into this guy and he talks to this guy and he takes that thing and he sticks him with it. And when he sticks him with it, the Bible says that the guy was kind of a heavy guy, that the, his, his body wrapped around the heft of that thing that he couldn't pull it out. Now that's a picture of when you stick somebody with the Bible, it stays. Remember last week I talked about Jeremiah, that my mandate was to, as a preacher was not to pull back my sword from blood, but to draw blood and not do the work of God deceitfully. Well, that was this guy right here. He went in and he stuck him. And the Bible says that the man's fat grafted the heft of that dagger and he couldn't pull it out. And then the Bible says, the dirt came out. See, anytime you stick somebody with the Word of God, the dirt that's on the inside is going to come out. Great picture. Great picture. Then you have in chapter 4 and 5, the third judge. That's a woman, Deborah. And of course, we're living in a time when uh, if God would have been in charge, there wouldn't have been a woman, but that's the way that it is. I mean, uh, and God used her. 
God uses whatever is willing to be used. Now, in this case, Deborah's a type of the church. She's a woman. She kills Sisera. That's your next type of the Antichrist. She kills him with a head wound, like the Antichrist, with a nail. And the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 23, 23 verse 29, that nail's a type of the Word of God. So here's a woman that kills a type of the Antichrist with a head wound with something that's picture type of the Word of God, picture second coming of Christ. Then she sings a song of victory about it. And of course, she, that's Judges chapter 5, she sings the song of victory. That's the new song found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. It all pulls together. Then in chapter 6, 7, and 8, you got the fourth judge, and that's Gideon. And oh, what a great principle that is. Gideon 300. Great Bible principle. Gideon starts out with 32,000 men. God says, that's too many. Now, you've got to keep in mind that they're going up against 135,000 enemies. They only got 32,000 to start with. God says, that's too many. So he cuts them down and sends 22,000 home, leaving 10,000. If that weren't bad enough, he says, okay, take that 10,000 down to the river and let them get a drink. And you watch the way they drink. And the way that they drink, they drink two ways. And the way the one guy drinks, you send him home. The way the other guy drinks, you keep him. That's great for a preacher. One of the things that I do is watch how you drink. So the pattern is right there, and that's never been wrong in my life that I've seen it. You take the guy that drinks one way and the guy that drinks someplace else, they wind up being two types of guys, and you might as well send the one guy home. Take that for what it's worth. But that's what your Bible does for you. It shows you those kind of things. 300 people up against 135,000. Then he says, go get those boys. He comes up and he says, well, I got a battle plan. We got air cover coming. We're going to have a 15-minute barrage, rolling barrage. We're going to have them scraped. We're going to put in mortar. We're going to even got some gas bombs over here, and we're going to do this thing. We're going to win this. God says, scrap those things. Here's what I want you to do. Go down here to Kmart and the Walmart, and you might have to go a couple other places because you're going to need a lot of these, but get you some lamps, get you some pitchers, and then get you some trumpets. And within the lamps and the pitchers and the trumpets, you have not only a picture of the second coming of Christ, you have a picture of how you and I are to fight the battle every day in our lives. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but that would make a good Thursday night Bible question. But the great principle is, you know what? God's always in the minority. And that's the other thing. You look around this world today in Christianity, everybody out there, you know from just the Bible consistency. I had a guy say to me one time, he said, Bob, he said, what you believe? He said, nobody in the world believes this. How in the world can you say you're right when, when everybody else in Christianity who's anybody and you're a nobody, how can you say you believe this and you're right when everybody else who's got thousands of degrees, millions of hours in Bible colleges, doing great things, and you're over here saying one thing, and everybody else, what makes you think that you're right when, when all the world thinks you're wrong? <clears throat> I said, easy, in Noah's day, the whole world, four billion people, thought he was wrong. He only had eight. He was right. God's always with the faithful few. If it's big and it's great and it's grand, God's probably not there. Not always, but 90% of the time. So what a great story that is. Then in chapter 9, you got Abimelech. <clears throat> He's the fifth judge. That's your next type of the Antichrist. Oh, and I must confess to you. This is one I hope you don't ask on, on, on Thursday night. Strange story here in Bemelech. Talked about the trees going forth, anointed king over them. And when you lay the whole thing out, <coughs> Abimelech <coughs> is the bramble. And the bramble tree <coughs> gets crowned and picked as the king. Hence, Abimelech becomes the king. But oh, there's a lot more here than that. Oh, yes. 
in that thing in Judges chapter 9, you got an olive tree, you got a fig tree, you got a vine tree, and you got a bramble tree. In Genesis, in the garden with the first Adam, you got the same four trees. And in, the, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the second Adam, you got the same four trees. And you know who gets crowned king over there? The bramble does. So when Christ is on the throne, they give him a crown of thorns from the bramble. That'll take you a while. Yeah, the thing will tell you what the tree of life is. It'll tell you what the tree of, it'll tell you what tree Eve ate off of. It'll tell you everything you want to know. Then in chapter 10 and 11, we have two guys here. The sixth one is Tola, 10, 1 and 2. The seventh is Jar, 10, 3. And then the eighth one, chapter 11 and 12, is my old buddy Jephthah. Now, there's ever a man that pictures the 21st century and the 20th century Christian, it's Jephthah. Here's a man that does his own thing. Here's a man that is a saved man. Here's a man that, in every case that you find him, he is totally oblivious to the Word of God, doing his own thing. And he's out there, and he's a hothead anyhow. And he's out there, you know, and uh, they try to get him to be the judge, and he says, okay, I'll be the judge. And he's walking down the road, you know, feeling pretty good about everything, you know, and he makes one of those great big spiritual vows, you know, saying, oh God, if you win this great battle for me, the first thing I do when I come home, the first thing I see, I'll offer to you and I'll sacrifice to you. Well, he gets a great battle, comes back, and the first thing he sees is his daughter coming out the gate. And so, true to his vow, he kills his own daughter. How many times I've had people ask me, now, how is God in that? How did God, why did God allow that? How? The answer is simple. We're in the book of Judges. God is in 100 million miles around any place here. This is the place where there is no king in Israel, and every man is doing it right in his own eye. This is a picture of modern man today losing their kids to the world and killing their kids as sure as you put a bullet to their brain because there's no absolute final authority in your life and you're doing your own thing and giving God the credit for it. Well, I preached that for a while, but we've got to move on. Chapter 13 and chapter 16, Samson. Oh, and if there's any man that totally shows the attitude of the time of the judges, it's Samson. A total disregard of authority for the Word of God and everything in his life. Now, traditionally, when you hear the stories about Samson, they focus on all the things in his life, you know, and there's some great sermons on it, and it's all true. It's all true. And, of course, he's portrayed as the great he-man with a she-weakness. And uh, he's, he's, he's always getting into the wrong situation. He's a, he's a Nazarite. He's under a vow, Numbers chapter 6. And when he, when he sins, he's supposed to do something to, to uh, get that vow taken away. And, of course, he touches the dead lion and gets the honey out. And then he never does what he's supposed to do. And that's another great message. He was supposed to get a lamb. He was supposed to get a female lamb. And he was supposed to get a ram. Well, he didn't. And it's great preaching. The whole, all of them's great. And they're all true. And they're all ways to apply it to your life. But you know what? We're going to go for it as far as the overall concept of how it fits to the book of Judges and where we're at. Because he's more than that. He's more than that. I've heard it preached that he was a spiritual suicide. When he got up there, which he was, and he pulled those pillars down, and he brought those pillars down on him, and he killed himself. I've heard guys preach that, you know what, you can live your life of sin and do your own thing, and finally God takes you home. And I believe that. I, be, I, don't, I, I don't find any violation with that preaching. I think that's true, but I think it's even more than that. I don't think it's just a fact that God's going to kill you. 
I don't think it's a fact that there are some people out there that just won't repent and keep on saving people. Go on and on and on. And God he just come, God's come down and says, I can't put this up with anymore. You're messing up too much. Come on. I'm taking you home. I believe that happens. And I believe, yes, Samson is a picture of that. But I don't believe that's the only picture he is. Because there's a lot of live Christians walking around today at the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to be as dead as a fish in the sun for a week. They're dead and they're alive. And they're saved, but yet they're dead. Samson winds up a total captive to the Philistines. And we know what the Philistines are. That's a picture of the world system. Not only does he become a total captive. In other words, when you study his life, you will find that the events in his life and the people in his life led him right down the golden path to be exactly where he is at and that thing is just an absolute destruction of his life. And yet, lo and behold, he's found in Hebrews chapter 11 in God's Hall of Fame. You know why? Because it's a picture of me and you. And there he is, captive by the Philistines, naked, blind, broken, wretched, shamed, disgraced, enslaved by the sin of this world. And at the judgment seat of Christ, he's a picture of the child of God that's going to stand there who have been in bondage to the world system and couldn't break it and didn't want to break it, and yet they're saved, they're on their way to heaven, they're going to be in heaven. He's a picture of the child of God at the judgment seat of Christ, losing all that he has, and he winds up naked, shamed, and broken. It's a great lesson that Israel never learned, neither do we. Greatest message I ever heard on this, and I never heard it in person, I heard it on tape, was by an old boy by the name of Sam Jones. How many ever saw the Grand Ole Opry? Grand Ole Opry's in Ryman Auditorium. Everybody thinks that's the home of the Grand Ole Opry. Ryman Auditorium was the home of Sam Jones. The world just took it over like everything else. Sam Jones was a Methodist, fire-breathing, hell, damnation preacher who was preaching down there and some old gambling guy got saved and when he got saved he recognized who got him saved by the preaching of the Word of God and he built Ryman Auditorium down there and every week Sam Jones preached there for I don't know how many years and he preached the Word of God and got thousands of people saved and after Sam Jones died, man, movement, machine, Grand Ole Opry. How come there wasn't somebody else took his place? Why didn't Jerry Falwell down there preaching, tearing it up? No picture fight against him, but I'm just asking, why didn't somebody else do it? Oh, Sam Jones used to preach on Samson. <coughs> you know what he preached? <coughs> He'd preach the lesson that he'd say, sin blinds you, sin binds you, and sin grinds you. He was blinded by his sin, he was binded by his sin, and then the Philistines finally made a slave at him, and he ground for them, and he was blinded, binded, and he grinded that millstone. Oh, picture of a child of God, spiritual suicide. You're alive, but you're dead, and when we get to the judgment, you're sold into slavery to this world, man, and when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're bare, naked, shameful, broken, busted, standing there before God because you, you dance with this world instead of taking care of the business with the Word of God. Chapter 17 through chapter 21, then we're done. <clears throat> Those chapters show you the depths <clears throat> of Israel's total collapse. They go into Baal worship, the idols, the groves, the gods, the images, the false doctrine. 
In fact, remember me telling you before, when you go over to Revelation chapter 14, when it talks about the 144,000, there's two tribes that aren't part of the 144,000. One is Dan, one is Ephraim. You go to Hosea, you'll find why Ephraim's, Ephraim's not. You come to the book of Judges chapter 17 through 21, you'll find out where Dan's not. Samson was from the tribe of Dan. Out of the book of Judges, Dan goes into deep apostasy. They accept Baal worship. They dump every semblance of God and the Word of God. Yet they've got a form of godliness and a form of religion. you got Micah, who takes a man from Dan, who's his priest, who brings him images and groves. And he, he got all this stuff taking place. Then in chapter 18 and 19, you have one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Almost a remake of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet there's no destruction. There's no fire from God coming down here. And I'll tell you why. You got an end picture at the end of this book shows you exactly what leaving the word of God and depravity of man do. And you got a picture of what's in America today because America. America, you want to judge this chapter 18 and 19, that strange story? That is the same exact thing we got in America today. Totally depraved. Reprobate mind. No concept of God from one end to the other. Then in chapter 20 and 21, with all this great ungodliness going on with the tribe of Dan in apostasy and the Baal worship and the Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin and the, all the stuff has taken place in chapter 20 and 21 you have the great leaders talking about great spiritual things with God giving oaths to God, swearing to God, swearing unto God saying how great God is and God is not a million miles around In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that was right in his own eyes. In closing, I'm going to give you the greatest thing about this story. And I gave you a lot of great concepts, but I'm going to give you the number one thing you want to take home today. Let me tell you something. This story, the book of Judges, takes place 400 years before David comes to the throne and Solomon comes to the throne. This event takes place 400 years before the highest spiritual peak that Israel ever had ever come into being. I mean, I'm telling you, they're in depravity now, and their greatest day isn't coming yet. For 400 years from now, they get to the highest religious, political system of the kingdom of heaven anywhere in the history of the world. And then they fall apart and go into apostasy and go into a captivity and they don't ever come back to the tribulation. You know why? You know why? You know why I think it was something after David? You think it was something after Solomon? No, my friend. You know why? Because even though this is 400 years away yet and they're still going to reach their greatest point, when they had their downfall, you couldn't point to anything there that you don't find here. In other words, I'm saying this, a little leaven leaven the whole lump. The seed was sown in the book of Judges that destroyed them in the book of Second Chronicles. Once you get leaven and false doctrine in your church, into your people, into your life, it is tough to get out. Four hundred years from now, David was going to come to the throne. And then Solomon. And after they leave and they're dead, the whole nation goes back to apostasy, back into the mess, Back into Baal worship, the exact same thing that's in the book of Judges. And by 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and 606 B.C., God says, I've had enough. Dispersion into the world. And it all started back in the book of Judges. That's why the things you put in your kids' lives when they're little, the things are going to pay off when they get older. 
That's why the things that we teach you right now, and I told you last week, the importance of that first year, the things we build right now are going to pay off down there. And the thing we have got to take care of and do business with 24-7 is understanding that we have got no leaven come in here, no false doctrine, no false teaching, and brother, it stays with a book because I'm telling you, you sow the seeds right now for what's going to happen in your life 20 years from now. I'm done. But I want to leave you with this. There's a reason why we sing songs out of here. Now, I'm not against good music. I'm not such a stickler that I just got to, but I know, I know, I, I believe this. You know, we have fun and we laugh and we watch things that are on TV that aren't biblical, and I think you can sing songs that way. But when it comes down to your praise and your worship and you're going to use music, don't ever have less doctrine in your singing than you got in your Bible. You guys, wouldn't, you guys wouldn't put up with me getting up here and preaching some mealy-mouthed, mush-mouthed message that says nothing, would you? Then why would I put up with somebody singing about it? I know that's my problem, but that's where I'm at. But there's a reason why I like this. Those old boys, they believe the Bible. I know those old boys were reading through here and reading these stories and they say, you know what, I got a song I can put to that. One of the greatest hymn writers that you ever find was a guy by the name of Daniel B. Toner. Lived from 1850 to 1919, right at the end of the Philadelphian church age. One day he was reading through the book of Judges. <clears throat> and he must have said to himself, <clears throat> I've never heard him say this and never even met him, never heard him say anything. Only read a short excerpt about his life. And I know what he believed. And I know he loved the book. <clears throat> and I know he wrote his songs based on the doctrine and principles in the word of God. And he must have come through that thing reading the book of Judges and he must have said to himself, I don't know if he did this, this is how I do it. I would say to myself, if I'm going to write a song about this book, what would be the title that would sum it all up? What would be the title <clears throat> that I could say in just the title of the song and then put the song to it that would say exactly that every Christian who listened to my music and read the Bible, would read the book of Judges and say, that's what that song's about. Or hear that song and say, that's what the book of Judges is about. At about 1880, somewhere in there, he wrote this song. And it says it all. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. Which we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. The book of Judges. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Joshua said, you cannot serve God and have those idols. He said you have to have courage. Courage to believe the Word of God. Courage to obey the Word of God. Courage to rest in the Word of God. And the book of Judges, they didn't. But when that old boy read that thing and he wrote that song, no greater line could ever state what needs to be done in the book of Judges and what needs to be done in our lives. Trust and obey. For there's no other way 
to be happy in Jesus and to trust and obey. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you tonight, this morning, for the time we've been able to spend in your word. We